Today's reading is Proverbs 5, 15 through 23. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not the strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly he is led astray. The word of the Lord. This summer we're doing a series on the book of Proverbs called Wisdom for Living. Um, because, you know, as we live in tumultuous times, uncertain times, challenging times, unprecedented times, sort of pick your uh, cliche that we, we've been told that we're living through this past year, um, and where the rules maybe have prepared us, but they don't exactly apply. And, and, and there's no clear black and white answer sometimes about what we're supposed to do. We're better to turn then to the book of Proverbs, the wisdom that is associated with King Solomon, the person who, when he could ask, you know, God said, ask me for anything and I'll give it to you. And he asked for wisdom and the kind of wisdom that he asked for. Now, obviously in his own personal life, uh, he needed a little more wisdom to go around. But in terms of being a wise ruler, in terms of being someone who could kind of administrate and, and run the government well, that's the type of wisdom that he was seeking. And so the book of Proverbs has long been associated with kind of this princely training, this, this school for leaders or for an elite class so that they can live their lives well. And, and, and it's associated with Solomon, um, but especially I think we see in our passage today where it talks about the importance of fidelity and faithfulness and loving the wife of, of your youth, that this would be Solomon saying, um, do as I say not as I do, necessarily. Now, two weeks ago, this was the 6th of June. It was a remarkable day, a beautiful day, a wonderful day, because on that day, our own Luke and Katie Stebbing got married. And it was, yeah, let's, get, let's give it up for them. And it was really, it was a wonderful wedding for a wonderful couple. I hope you look like you're having a great time. I was having a great time. It was really really fun. And, and as the last part, as I'm doing um, marriage prep, one of the last things that we, we do is we actually plan the ceremony itself. That's the very last thing that I do as part of the marriage prep process. Because you can have, you know, a terrible wedding, but if you have a good marriage, sort of, you know, who cares, right? And so the wedding itself is important, but it's not like that important. Um, you know, I know it's a, we, we spend a lot of money, we put a lot of time, effort, and energy into it, but, but the ceremony itself is it's such a brief thing when you think about having the rest of your lives to spend together. And so part of planning the wedding ceremony is you pick the vows that you're going to say. And if you think about these vows, these are like the most important promises that you are ever going to speak to another human being. You know, you are pledging your love, your life, your support, your commitment, your bodies to one another. And you're saying, you know, I'm going to do this as long as we both shall live. These are forever promises. These are serious promises. And so Luke and Katie, they found these vows that they liked, but there was one piece that was missing from them uh, that came from actually one of the other vow options in the service book. And it was this lovely little line that they added to their vows. And it was this, forsaking all others. They both wanted that. They wanted to say, you know, all these promises I'm making and forsaking all others. Now that sounds so exclusive, 
doesn't it? So wonderfully limiting. And so what they're saying is that this promises, this, this yes that they're making to each other is also implicitly, explicitly too in saying that. It's, it's a no to everybody else. Saying only we are going to have this relationship. Only we will share this particular commitment, this particular unity of heart, of mind, of body, of spirit. And so marriage is all about accepting and embracing exclusivity, limitations, because it's understood that it's only within those limitations that the marriage itself can grow and flourish into what God intended it to be. It's only within that exclusivity and those limitations that we are free to be a husband or a wife. And that's one of the great themes of this passage this morning, actually, embracing limits, accepting exclusivity. And our passage has a double meaning to it. And this was, and Amy was picking worship songs this morning, and, and it's a challenge because it's like, what is this going to be about? How does this have to do with God? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you how in just a moment. There's a double meaning to it. On the surface, this is advice being given to a young man about the wisdom of monogamy, of remaining faithful and exclusively committed to his wife, the wife of his youth, and the folly and the destructiveness of adultery. Now, I wholeheartedly embrace the surface-level meaning of this passage. But beneath the surface and, and throughout the book of Proverbs, there's a deeper meaning as well. Proverbs, in Proverbs, wisdom is personified as a, as a woman. Lady Wisdom, we, we, we meet her often in that book. And, and so this advice, it's also an allegory for the exclusivity of our commitment to the Lord of walking in God's ways, of living life with God, which means living wisely, which means understanding what it is to live a good life, which is more in Proverbs than, than following the rules, but living by God-given principles and circumstances that we haven't encountered before, and maybe where the rules didn't apply or for which the rules haven't prepared us. And so a wise life is a life lived where we are fully committed to the Lord where we commit ourselves to him, forsaking all others. When we accept the freedom that it comes from embracing exclusivity and that limitation. And so I want to share a word at the beginning, kind of my two points I'm going to get to at the end. And, and, and relatively briefly, it's, you know, why do we stray? That's one question we're going to ask, you know, why would we stray? And then how do we stay? But at first, this question of, of boundaries, of, of limits, and this is something that, that Proverbs is, is, is consistently exploring. At first, especially in the first nine chapters, Proverbs is kind of breaking up into two parts. And chapter one through nine is sort of this general reflection upon the importance of wisdom and how to get it. And then chapter 10 through the end is kind of these specific little aphorisms, these little quotes, these little nuggets of wise advice. But the beginning is this almost philosophical reflection upon what it means to be a, a wise person, and so, um, which means kind of discerning boundaries, moral boundaries within the created order is one of them. And as I was, um, as I was reading for this sermon, uh, you know, you never know when you're going, I've never preached on the book of Proverbs before, you never know when you're going in, and, and as a preacher, you know, what we need most is a good commentary to kind of get us in it. That's what we're always looking for. That's kind of our professional secret. If we can find a good commentary, and sometimes they're just not out there. Sometimes you're dealing with not a lot of good stuff. You're not being given a lot by the scholars. But there's this commentary that I, I borrowed from Matt's library, actually. Um, that's, it's just wonderful. It's a delight. When you find a wonderful person, a person who understands and can kind of comment on the scriptures, 
who do it in such a thoughtful, rich, deep, applicable way. It's, it's, it, it's a treasure. Um, I can't even tell you how much I love it. And this, this Proverbs commentary is written by uh, an American Old Testament scholar, a guy named Raymond Van Leeuwen. And Raymond, is, he comes from the Dutch Reformed tradition. Um, and they have a saying in that tradition, if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. I don't know, Anne, if you ever heard that sort of growing up. Yeah, you probably heard that. If you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. Dave, I don't know if you heard that too, but no, yeah, good, okay. Yeah, you were spared that, the, 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 the Western Michigan sort of mafia, you know what I mean, in northern, northern Iowa. He comes, he, he comes from there. I, I, I'm not Dutch, so I, I, I ain't much, that's for sure. But he has these wonderful, thoughtful, incisive comments, and he's thinking about this broader theme in chapters 1 through 9, but he's really, he, it's really a comment on this one verse. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. There's like a, a limit. Your own cistern. And kind of the, the, the challenge of discerning uh, the moral order within the creative order. And he says this, and it's, it's, it's a long quote, but it's, this was good. This was like, I can't cut anything, so I'm just, I'm just going to share it with you. I'm channeling uh, Raymond, Ray, Ray Van Leeuwen here. He says, to step beyond the boundaries of freedom set by God is to attempt the impossible, to live outside the very conditions that make life possible. In the end, humans can no more live outside God's moral order than can the proverbial fish out of water live outside of God's biotic order. Outside the ordinance of God, we find not life, but ultimately death. And humans have little difficulty seeing this truth in the so-called natural world. One cannot, you know, leap off, leap off a building, flap our arms, and fly. We're going to fall tight, straight to the ground. If we eat poison, we get sick or die. But humans are more easily confused in the moral sphere because of the great freedom God has entrusted to us. Freedom to shape culture language, art, and even created institutions as fundamental as marriage and family in a variety of ways. Nevertheless, a culture that thinks there are no limits to freedom finds itself in the out-of-bounds territory of death and chaos. Death is the ultimate limit on human freedom. Right? It's the one thing that drives us to accept reality and to find the good within its limits. It's this truth that, that Pharaoh was unwilling to learn when plague after plague confronted him. The freedom to shape the world and our way in it has thus led to opposite errors. On the one hand, there's the error of, of legalism, which attempts to prevent evil and ensure life by making laws on top of God's laws uh, to avoid coming close to sin. This is what we think of when we think of the, the, the Pharisees or being pharisaical. You know, since, since sex is dangerous, we forbid dancing. Alcohol is dangerous, so we will forbid drinking. Such an approach to religion has only the appearance of wisdom. It errs when it identifies human conventions with God's will. The Apostle Paul condemns it. Much of the New Testament is an attack on legalism, which reduces religion to morality. And ironically, churches, has, churches have often made asceticism, so that's like a very rigorous, spartan sort of self-denying uh, commitment to God, you know, deny yourself all the, the, the pleasures of, of this world. It's been made mandatory rather, rather than voluntary. So we've got the one error, the error towards legalism. He says, this modern age, other, age however, makes an opposite error. As never before, modernity has become aware of freedom 
of the human role in social formation, and of the consequent diversity of cultures. But this important insight has been accompanied by the erroneous belief that culture is purely, purely the creation of human ingenuity. The eminent uh, anthropologist Clifford Geertz put it this way, believing that man is an animal suspended in webs of significance he himself has spun, I take culture to be those webs. So we've spun it all. We've made it. Made it. We've created uh, the meaning. That's what, what Clifford Geertz is saying. But even spiders need twigs to hang their webs on and flies to come their way and bodies made for spinning. Taken to its conclusion, this view, the view of Clifford Geertz, suggests that there are no created limits, that culture is completely arbitrary, and that everything is permitted as a matter of personal or collective preference, a view advertisers constantly exploit. This collective tendency rebels against the realities that limit human freedom. Often arguments against such a, a knowable reality that we could actually know what these God-given limits are, uh, which hold human beings accountable, arguments against that, they exploit the protean ambiguity dwelling in the margins of language. Yet, though language shapes humans' grasp of reality, only God orders a reality for Adam to name and shape. Consequently, it is possible to shape reality truly or falsely. So wisdom is the scripturally grounded, spirit-driven, communally discerned, individually enacted process of shaping reality as truly as we possibly can, as we humanly can. And it's the monumental task to which human beings, to which Christians, to which the church has been perpetually called. And so on this line of thinking, you know, when it talks about adultery being bad, it's not in the way that onions or liver or lutefisk are bad, right? And I know people, that's sort of heretical to say that onions are bad, but I'm just saying it, all right? They're not good unless they're finely grated and slipped into your food imperceptibly, all right? <laughs> that's just the truth. But green onions are good. We can debate sort of the merits of various onions. I'm happy to do that after the service. But we're saying, okay, what, what Proverbs is saying is that, that adultery is bad not in the way that these other things are bad, which are just a matter of taste, right? You can take it or leave it. It's altogether different, but as a matter of moral fact. And so wisdom is being able to discern those patterns within the created world where we will be living in harmony in step with how God has made us and what he's made us for. Forsaking all others. But now I want to move on to, to why we stray and how we stay. So uh, Proverbs warns the seeker of wisdom against becoming intoxicated uh, with what he calls a, a forbidden woman or against seeking the embrace of an adulteress. And so why would the seeker of wisdom, why would that person be tempted to stray beyond the limitation of his exclusive forsaking all others relationship with the wife of his youth, but also implicit, as we've said within this text, with his God? Why would you stray? And we think about this question, a few reasons come to mind. You know, first there is the fear of missing out, you know, which my generation calls FOMO, right? The fear of missing out, the sense that, that some people have, that, that if you have an exclusive, limited commitment, that, that somehow you're going to be depriving yourself on, on, on the full possibilities of existence, 
And so commitment in this line of thinking is the same as being constrained. And being constrained is the same thing as being oppressed. And there can be this belief that the, the worst thing to happen to someone uh, is to be tied down. Now, I, I do think this, when it comes to matters of the heart, as much as some people fear commitment, I believe that far more people actually crave it. That that's, you know, in, in matters of the heart, that makes sense. But in matters of faith, well, there's so many religions, there's so many denominations, there's so many potential, you know, paths up the mountain, the thinking goes, that isn't it foolish, isn't it limiting to commit yourself to just one, forsaking all others? But here's where the fear of missing out needs to be turned on its head. Because instead of asking, well, what am I missing out on if, if, if I uh, commit myself to walking exclusively with the, with the Lord, what might I be missing out on if I don't commit myself in this particular way? It's not what you're missing out on by committing yourself, but what you're missing out on by not. And so shouldn't you be afraid of missing out on the benefits that come from walking exclusively with the Lord, the benefits of knowing him more, of praying to him day after day, of being constantly surprised by his mercies and the blessings and the strength that he provides us in the face of life's manifold adversities. So we stray because we fear like we might be missing out. Now, another reason we stray, and I, I think this is just a, a kind of a, a cultural, uh, you know, a, a cultural problem we grapple with today is this sense of ennui boredom, right? You know, we're, we're living at, uh, you know, uh, the end of history, right? And so uh, life is, there's, you know, what did Alexander the Great, he wept because there were no more lands left for him to conquer, you know? His life had lost all meaning and purpose when he couldn't go out and conquer anything else. And, and as, you know, weird people, Western, enlightened, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic societies, right? We, human society has developed to its apex. So now we sort of live in this world where the only thing we have to do is kind of collect our paycheck and live our, you know, professional lives and wait to die. And so there's this ennui that comes from living in this historical moment, this boredom, which is coupled then with this desire to seek thrill, to feel like we're alive. And so to do that, we kind of seek the thrill of transgression. We want to experience this thrill of being alive again. And rhythm and routine and ritual, as important as they are, can become a rut in which we are stuck. And so I think this explains the, the kind of the classic midlife crisis, where we get bored, not so much with life, I think, as with ourselves. That's why, you know, the, the, the cliche is, you know, the middle-aged man buys the sports car and gets the hair plugs and leaves his wife and kids. He's seeking a thrill that will make him feel alive again. And, and there's this jolt of excitement that comes when you cross a boundary and see, what, can I get away with this? It gives you a dose of adrenaline, which is a drug. But here's the truth about, about you know, uh, just straying for the sake of the thrill. Like any drug, we develop a tolerance to it. And so once you become addicted to that transgression, you have to keep upping the antony in order to get the same feeling. And so you have to cross further and further and further for the same effect. But most people, we reach our limits. We're not willing to do that. And so eventually what was once transgressive becomes just another form of conformity. Today's, you know, radicals are tomorrow's boring conformists. 
So people stray for the thrill. They stray because they're afraid of missing out. And here's one final reason people stray. This deep scent of resentment that's coupled with their need to be loved and appreciated, which is itself intoxicating. And so when it comes to relationships, uh, the, the corrosive toxin that destroys everything is resentment. There can be no love where there is resentment. There can be no reconciliation where there's resentment. And resentment, this resentment comes when we feel like we've been wronged over a period of time by someone who we trusted. And we think that by holding them in contempt and fostering anger in our hearts, we're going to be able to somehow hold that person accountable. And furthermore, we think by getting what they denied us, if we can get that from someone else, that's part of our getting even too. And so resentment, though, and revenge, they're never going to give us what reconciliation can. And so that's why we stray. But it's much more important to think about and look at this passage in terms of how do we stay? Three ways to stay. To build an exclusive, lifelong relationship that thrives. And it involves exclusivity, intimacy, and joy. And first, exclusivity. Our passage says, you know, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. And so a relationship that lasts is built on that foundation of exclusivity, on embracing the limit of forsaking all others. Because it's only when you have that that you can fully entrust yourselves to that person. When there's an easy way out, when there's an escape hatch, you can never fully establish trust. In, in the marriage prep process, I use this tool called Prepare Enrich. It's, it's wonderful. And part of that assessment is it's asking people all these questions and basically, do you agree or disagree with these statements about your relationship? One of the statements is this, is I am willing to do whatever it takes to make our marriage work. And then it also asks that statement, do you think that that's true of your, of your future spouse? Are they willing to do that too? And agreement, commitment, like that is one of the first things that I see on my report because without that, that's a huge waving red flag without a sense of exclusive commitment and dedication to the relationship. If there's no commitment, there's no exclusivity, that's a huge red flag. And if we think about it in terms of our walk with the Lord, exclusivity is right there. It's the number one commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. No exclusivity, no trust, no trust, no intimacy, which is the second aspect of a relationship that, that lasts. And here, I'm not going to repeat it. It's where the passage, Proverbs 5, gets a little racy, a little PG-13, maybe, maybe even rated R. 80s PG-13, 80s PG. They could do anything in the 80s, but, you know, so uh, 80s movies. But it gets racy. But it talks about being filled with the delight of the intimacy of the relationship, and what intimacy means is there's this foundation of trust such that you can entrust your whole self unreservedly to that person, knowing that they won't then in turn abuse or betray that trust. And what's the Garden of Eden story, if not a kind of a loss of a sense of intimacy with God, a shame within that that comes from breaking that exclusive trust? And a spiritual intimacy, it's, it's the key to a life-giving and life-sustaining relationship it's at the heart of a wise life, a well-lived one. And true intimacy is cultivated the, in the environment, not of a casual encounter, but of a life-giving, lifelong exclusive commitment. So there's the exclusivity, there's the intimacy, but finally, how we stay is rejoicing with our beloved. Our passage says, rejoice in the wife of your youth. 
So saying foster joy in your relationships. Find things to celebrate. Share the things that you love, and your joy will be complete. And what is worship, right? The singing of songs of praise to God, if not the fulfillment of this command, which leads us to a greater intimacy in our walk with the Lord. That's why we sing these songs of praise, because we rejoice in the God who has committed himself to us for all eternity, who, who knows us so intimately, knows us better than we know ourselves, and, and, and who wants us to flourish and thrive by living within the boundaries of the created order. It's for that God that we forsake all others, because there is no other. No one else who can raise the dead. No one else who can save a wretch like me. No one else who can love us with a love that will not let us go for all eternity. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.